Welcome to The Change Alchemist. Today's guest is Robin Rosenberg. Dr. Robin Rosenberg is the CEO and founder of Live in Their World. She's a clinical psychologist and textbook author. Robin's been interested in virtual reality for years and was the lead author of a study to investigate using VR for good. She has combined her interest in immersive technologies with her coaching and clinical experiences to foster in employees a deeper understanding of how and why other people might feel slighted or marginalized and how to approach such interactions differently. Robin is the author of both college-level psychology textbooks and books for a general audience about the psychological underpinnings of fictional characters like Harry Potter, Batman, and the girl with the dragon tattoo. After decades with successful psychotherapy and coaching practices, she founded Live in Their World, which enables lasting change in organizational civility and respectful engagement. Hello and welcome to the show, Robin. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Robin, you have a very interesting background. You have an MA and PhD in psychology. You've written a books, both textbooks and books on superheroes. And you're the CEO of Live in Their World. And I'm fascinated that you're using VR to actually solve a problem that's near and dear to my heart for sure. And it's an important problem. So tell us about your company. What does Live in Their World do? We do a bunch of things. Our program uses, in part, virtual reality to address issues of bias and incivility and upskill employees for respectful engagement. None of us is ever going to get it all right. And so it's really, how do we work through conflict or unintentional disrespect. Most of the time, disrespect is unintentional or incivility is unintentional. And so just how do we make the workplace a more respectful place to spend our time even when we're working remotely? So that's one thing. And, And we use what we know from the science of learning, the science of psychology, and the science of habit change, because really what we're talking about when you talk about civility at work or respectful behavior is creating new habits. And one and done training workshops don't do that. And then the other thing we do is because so much of habit change ultimately rests with leaders and managers to encourage or discourage old habits. We offer training to leaders to really help them help their employees, if you will. And with hybrid workplaces, uh, there's a whole other set of biases Mm -hmm. that there, there have to be just because of the nature of how people are psychologically that we, we really want to help upskill leaders and managers to understand what those known biases are, how to spot kind of unknown biases and and really what to do about that, 
as companies and organizations are trying to figure out what their hybrid organization looks like. So VR is a fascinating technology, and I would not have thought that it could be applied to something like bias. Talk to me a little bit about VR and got, what got you started. Sure. I'm a psychologist, as you mentioned, and for many years I had a clinical practice, a psychotherapy practice, and also executive coaching practice. And I became interested in hypnosis to help people address or transform in ways that traditional psychotherapy wasn't so good at. For instance, women with body image issues or certain kinds of phobias. I like to say before there was VR, there was hypnosis. <laughs> so the way you might treat someone with an airplane phobia, a flying phobia was with hypnosis. Mm-hmm. I was struck by some parallels between hypnosis and virtual reality about 25 years ago. There started to be a literature on the psychology of virtual reality. And both of them had uh, what's called dual consciousness or divided consciousness, which is we experience the trance state. Uh-huh and the VR state as real, even though we also know that it's not real, that our bodies are you know, doing something else other than this altered consciousness. And we're, we hold both of those side by side. It turns out that neuroimaging shows that both trance and VR experience are encoded in our brains as real. So that was another commonality they had. And I just thought it was fascinating. So I just started reading the literature until it it really became too large to keep track of. And I had the good fortune to collaborate uh, with Jeremy Balinson at Stanford, who's a a big American psychologist doing VR work. It was around the time that Trayvon Martin was killed and George Zimmerman was acquitted. And that led me, and then, so that led to Black Lives Matter And that led to some white people saying white lives matter or all lives matter. And I kept thinking from what I know of psychology and VR was top of my mind because I was doing that work that, you know, if we could give those people who said white lives matter enough of the experience of what it is to be black. and, And again, I'm not presuming to know, but the conceptually, my hypothesis was that it was fundamentally a failure of deep understanding. Mm -hmm. That was the problem. Mm -hmm. And so the solution is to provide really deep understanding. And VR seemed like a really good medium to provide that deep understanding. That was how VR came about to solve this. And so there's understanding. And we know from a lot of the research in the DEI feel that understanding is not enough. I mean, we know this actually from tons of (laughs) decades of psychotherapy, right? Understanding is not enough for behavior change. But for, to want to develop new habits, you have to be motivated because habit change is hard. And I like to think of even COVID as an example, because we had to get into the new habit of wearing our masks mm-hmm. for those of us who wore masks and we were out and how many times did we forget to wear them in the beginning and we were often wearing them because we were really motivated not to get sick so we were highly motivated and now 
for people who are not as concerned about wearing a mask, it's developing the new habit of not wearing a mask mm -hmm. and putting on your mask and realizing you didn't have to put it on. Habit change is hard. And I, what the VR does is provide deep motivation for that habit change. Cause we literally put you in the perspective of people from different demographic groups and experience the work world from absolutely their perspective and show not just the effect of disrespect, again, often unintentional, but also how anyone who was in the room and understood what happened can make a difference. So if I'm disrespected, what do I do? What do I do? We try to really help upskill people for what do I do if I'm disrespected in some way? What do we do if we see it happen? And there are many ways to intervene, some publicly, some privately. And if I'm the person who was unintentionally disrespectful, A, it helps me just be more aware so I am less, less frequently disrespectful. But also if someone gives me feedback, how do I take that feedback? How do I take it in and transform my behavior? And because that's a skill as well really had to take feedback well and really learn and have an open and curious mindset. So with uh, the hybrid workplace, and I haven't gone back to work and many of our companies here in Silicon Valley are still remote. Um, I think it becomes even more difficult because you can't parse the body language of the other person. And right. all you have is the face and the eyes at, on Zoom. Mm -hmm. So how do you think that kind of uh, factors into bias and how do you go beyond that to provide feedback and feedback would just be about work then right it can't be about hey you didn't smile on a zoom call or you how do you how do you have that connection with someone let alone provide feedback maybe you can provide feedback about their code or their work but about behavior about soft skills so I, uh, there are a bunch of different ways. Some of it may be visual. Yeah. The way you looked at me during our one-on-one -on -one video call. But some of it is, um, did you interrupt me? What happened to my ideas? Did they just go into a black chasm and I got no feedback? I sent this really long email and I got a one sentence reply. So there are many ways that we can unintentionally disrespect people, partly just because we're overloaded with stuff to do or just we aren't thinking or we didn't realize. Sure. So giving feedback there are many ways and it really does depend on the nature of the relationship. So the level of trust, I think of it as earning tr people earn trust points with each other, but they can also lose trust points. So it's like the game shoots and ladders or snakes and ladders where sometimes you, you get a big boost up, up a ladder. So that's how I think of trust. And so if there's a lot of trust, there's a lot of goodwill and I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I may give you some informational point. So I might say, hey, when that call, it, it seemed to me that you interrupted me a lot. Did you notice that? Right. So I might ask you questions. 
offline, right? Maybe privately, one-on-one. -on -one. I might send you a Slack message. Hey, you seem to be interrupting me. What's going on? But it, it's as a friend, as a trusted person, like what's going on? That's not typically how you are. If we don't have as much trust, it's harder to do remotely because I might stop by your desk or catch you after a meeting if we were in person. And so now I have to schedule an appointment to talk to you, which, exactly. which makes it all the way already more intense right. if I'm scheduling an appointment. And formal too. It becomes very formal. It becomes very formal. And so it may be that I pick up the phone and call you, or if we have some kind of webcam or portal system where I can just see when you're available and not, I may try to do that more informally. It, it mean, it really is figuring out what the right, both medium and timing is based on the trust we have. The, the good news is that when people work through that, they both earn trust points and actually it deepens the connection. So I, I think the, for the person getting feedback, it's really trying to be open and curious and learn. Even if you don't agree with what the person said, you are getting a window into their world mm -hmm. and to respect that and to honor that they are conveying something about themselves and your intention may be good. There's you know, a huge difference between intent and impact. <laughs> We're telling you something about impact, don't argue about intent, right? They're, you're learning something about the disconnect between how you intend for something to land and how it actually lands. Sure. So with feedback, if you were to summarize three takeaways for people giving and sharing feedback, what would they be? Would they, would it have to be timely? Would it have to be based on the trust level? How would you summarize it? I'll tell you where this question is coming from. I feel like I have to draw the line between being honest and being kind. Sometimes being too honest might hurt someone. And I always feel a little awkward. Mm -hmm. And I also think so much about it, then the feedback is not relevant because it's out two weeks after the fact. So I'm just trying to see how I might wow. be, how I might be able to do this in a way that's useful for both people. So I, I think having examples is really helpful because otherwise it's conceptual. And if people aren't aware they're doing it, it's really just in a vacuum. And, and so you're not collecting examples to blame, I think from my perspective, it's not about blame, it's about education, if you will. And so examples really help flesh it out. Mm -hmm. And so that's one piece is really is to collect specific examples. I think another piece is about timing is you want to give feedback when people are as prepared to hear it as they can be. And so it's to say, hey, I wanted to talk with you about something I noticed. Is this a good time? That's really helpful versus just assuming when you want to talk about it is when they want to talk about it because they're off to a meeting or they're really just not in an open frame of mind. 
so I guess that's the second piece is really if you're going to do it privately, not in the moment, is to find a time together. And then I think the third piece is think about what your goal is. And, and the feedback you give should be oriented towards your goal. Perfect. Very good. So, so one of the interesting things related to the goal is that sometimes male supervisors don't give women who their direct reports the um, actual detailed feedback with examples and help them understand the ways that they need to professionally develop, what their challenges are, what they should be doing differently because they don't wanna hurt us. They don't wanna hurt women, whether it's because they're afraid of, of her getting upset or that they think this is how they, that what a nice thing to do is, I many reasons why, but, it, but the research shows it actually disadvantages women because they are not getting the type of professional growth feedback that they need and that their male counterparts get. So what is the goal in giving feedback? In that case, that's a, an example where the goal of feedback is to help people develop. And so by withholding it and being quote kind, it actually isn't, it's having the opposite effect it's kind in the moment, but it's actually punishing in the long term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. Really good nuggets there. You talked about civility a little while ago, and my curiosity was piqued because it's an important topic. And I was curious to see what your thoughts are on how you would define it, because I've been bullied in the workplace and civility is kind of the other extreme it's being polite so mm -hmm. how do you how do you achieve that in an organization as a leader so let's define terms first good point incivility is typically defined as lower level but chronic disrespect now Incivility can be based on bias because of someone's demographic identity or some other piece, or someone's just a jerk, an all-around jerk, and they're uncivil to everybody or most <laughs> everyone or the people under them, but not the people above them. So uh, incivility, again, isn't specific to DEI, if you will. Civility is being, it's more than being courteous and polite. It is also thinking about the impact of your words and deeds and then adjusting your behavior accordingly. That's really, um, we, we get back to our friend impact here. Uh -huh. And so what that means is you have to have some level of what's called theory of mind which is being able to put yourself in the shoes of people who aren't necessarily like you. So it's not how would I react in this situation, but how do I think that person would react in this situation? And that can be tricky. And that's where the more 
someone, the better you can get at that. So that it does complicate things. And that's where it's a learning opportunity to have those conversations about, hey, this was my intention. What was the impact? Because that's how we learn. We need that feedback to learn. And with COVID, how has DEI changed and how has this whole concept of civility, this concept of inclusion, all of this, right? Um, how has all that been impacted? Has it been better for people that are in the minority? What's your take on COVID being a, a force for good or not? It's mixed. I think, I, I don't think, well, for women in general, we know it's been horrible because to the extent that there are children or other people at home who need caretaking, that burden has typically fallen more on women than men. And so women have been having to make really difficult choices. And so we know that some women quit their jobs explicitly because of COVID caretaking responsibilities. So that's been really bad. And for from a, a sort of, I'm going to tease apart, there's diversity, there's equity, there's inclusion. From an equity perspective, it's bad all around because as people are working from home, people who have more money have better broadband and their internet speed is faster. They have better resources, not Many organizations have not sent out laptops and cell phones or internet. They're not paying for upgraded internet. So the equity piece, it depends on the company, but overall, it's sort of not so great. If employees want files, file folders, they have to buy them unless they've been given a budget for home office supplies. So that's equity. And then we're not even talking about compensation. That's um, put that aside for inclusion. Some of the same things that were happening in the workplace happen remotely, people interrupting ideas, not, you're not getting credit for ideas, writing long emails and getting a one sentence response. People not showing up for meetings. Not showing up for meetings, people showing up and multitasking. All of these things are still there. Um, some of them, some may be worse for some teams or working groups, and it may be better or, and more equalized in others. I think partly, again, it depends on the leader uh, or the manager. It depends on the organization and how much they actively have tried to address this. I think as we go hybrid, there is a an absolute built-in bias toward employees who are in person, uh, especially when the leaders are themselves in person. Oh. This built-in, we can't help but avoid this. There are all kinds. I can run through the list of biases that affect this. Oh, no, I would love to hear that because I, I thought it would actually have changed now that people know people can be productive whether you're at home or working in the office, but it looks like there would still be that bias against people. It's a different, it's actually a different bias as we are hybrid. And for, for organizations or teams that have always had some people remote and some people in office, they've had these biases and have struggled with them. It's just now more of us know about them. So we have something called the mere exposure effect 
which is the more we're exposed to a stimulus, unless there's an, a reason to actively dislike, we're, we tend to feel more positively. And that's why it's so important to have ads for political candidates you know, or new product. It's just the more familiar it is, the more you're likely to think positively. And so you as an employee are more likely to bond with the employees in the office with you every day than the remote employees okay. or the employees who are in the office less. Mm -hmm. As a leader, and this is where it starts to get really complicated, mm -hmm. as a leader, you are more likely to both feel positively towards the direct reports who are in the office and you are, because they're quote, top of mind, you see them, you are more likely to give them higher status jobs, higher FaceTime jobs, jobs that have more mm -hmm. visibility because they're just there. When this opportunity comes up, you, you see them and you, oh yeah, right. You just, I'll give it to Robin. So that in that sense, remote people or people in the office less are disadvantaged. It's a built-in disadvantage. And even in organizations where there's a conference uh, call, a video call, and the best practice is everybody is on their own computer having a video call. Even if five of us are in the office and, and one or two are remote, we should still do this because it equalizes it for the remote people. Mm -hmm. But there's still that opportunity for me after the meeting, after I've turned off, quit Zoom, to stroll over to your desk and say, hey, what did you think of you know, <laughs> remote people have to work to make that happen? There aren't these spontaneous connections or little mini connections that form. Or you said or did something that I felt disrespected. It's easy for me to come up to you in the office and just mention it in some casual way. But if, but for a remote person, it's a bigger deal. Yeah, and VR yeah. can certainly help, right? With that. So VR, so we use VR to, to upskill people mm -hmm. with our program. Okay. There are collaborative VR programs in real time mm -hmm. that can be super helpful to give people the sense of co-location mm -hmm. mm -hmm. of being together with people who are not actually in the same room. And that can be super, super helpful, both just for the connection aspect and for collaborative work, because we do know that many types of collaborative work are much harder when yes. everyone yes. is remote. Or, so or as, a technology, as a technology, it can be used, but your company focuses on programs per se. We, we focus on non-real-time, yes, yeah. I will say in terms of the collaborative piece of the sense of co-location, as of now, the, the VR software programs that I know of, the disadvantage is that you're actually not getting facial expression. So it's the opposite of Zoom which is I might see where your body is in space and, and how you're, and maybe how you're moving your hands around, yeah. but I'm not going to see 
read be able to read your mood because it's just basically a, a sort of digitized photo of you put on an avatar or it's a you know computer generated avatar mm -hmm. so there's information that's lost but what you do get is the sense of being surrounded by your colleagues around a table or whatever it is sitting next to each other watching a presentation you, you get avatars of each other but and, not the real person not so far not i mean they have to <laughs> They'd have to, ha it would take an enormous amount of bandwidth. I fascinating. It's really fascinating. You are so multifaceted, uh, Robin. You've, you've gone deep with VR and you've, I guess you also have a Dear Robin column, which I started reading. Uh, <laughs> what got you started with that column? Oh, yeah. So if, if for your listeners, you can just go to our website, liveintheirworld.com backslash Dear Robin. And it's a column that we started because I people were asking me for advice about just different situations at work that were related to DEI or just civility in general, or, you know, it's just specific. How do I handle a direct report? Who? Blah, blah, blah. And so I thought it might be helpful to both hear new questions. So anyone can anonymously submit a question and people are welcome to do and and just people might be able to learn from each other. And I, I try to supply research where there's relevant research or deeper tips and tools. So I just, it was a way of systematizing or formalizing what I was doing informally because these are genuine issues at work and people just want help and advice right. about what to do about them. I would love to hear what your superpower is given that you do so many things. Let's hear it from you. So I know that one of my superpowers is my ability to see human problems from multiple perspectives. I, like many, I didn't know it was a superpower until later in life. You only know when you see what other people can and can't do and how you compare. But one of the things that I've learned is when people have a dilemma, an interpersonal dilemma, that I'm particularly good at looking at it from multiple vantage points at the same time. And, and typically that is hard to do, to see it from multiple different perspectives. So you can be an observer rather than uh, you, judging them or trying to put yourself right. in their shoes. I, I can put myself in multiple people's shoes at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I can also imagine the, the people who are quite different than I am. And I'm apparently very good at that. People typically have a harder time imagining Great. Um, people who are quite different. And you've done uh, research on superheroes, talking of superpowers. And tell us a little bit uh, about the books you've written, uh, specifically the book on superheroes. Sure. I actually have quite a number of books I've written or edited about superheroes. I, I got interested in it. I write psychology textbooks and I was writing an intro psych textbook, introductory psychology textbook, when I got an email from a publisher who was, they were editing a book on the psychology of Harry Potter and they asked if I wanted to contribute a chapter. And I said, sure. 
having read the books that there were available at that point. I think there were only two or three at that point. And I wrote a chapter about what students really learn at Hogwarts. <laughs> and I don't know if you're familiar with the books. Yes, very familiar with, yeah. yeah. Great. So, you know, they don't actually ever learn the scientific method. And they really just, it's memorization and practice of spells. And that's how Voldemort got to be so powerful is because he experimented. And they didn't know how to address that because they only knew what they learned for generations. So I had a whole thing about the scientific method and learned helplessness, and it was a lot of fun. And then they were going to be doing a book on the psychology of superheroes. And I had asked if I could edit that one because while writing the intrapsych textbook, I thought, gee, this is, wouldn't it be fun to do this from the perspective of the psychology of Superman and Batman? So I edited that book and I have, I should also say I have three sons. And so it <laughs> was something that they participated in various ways. And we just, it grew from there and we would go to comic cons, comic conventions. So I, I wrote two books. One is what's the matter with Batman. <laughs> and another one is on superhero origin stories. And that was really fun. And then I've edited a bunch of books about superheroes, including one that half of the book is comic book writers and what they think a superhero is, and then half from social scientists and what the implications are for our world. So if we were to take some of the findings of, obviously I, I'm only familiar with Batman and a few other superheroes, but I know enough th that some superpowers are given to you and some are um, honed and some people don't have them, but they acquire them. So how do you, do you categorize them into mutants and superheroes? Uh, how's the world of superheroes defined? So for me, so the world of, how do I categorize superheroes? So one is that the two, you know, heroes are, there's the super part and then the hero part. And you can have be a super villain or a superhero or, neither and have superpowers quietly no one knows about it <clears throat> the and the hero part is consistently acting heroically the super part is some is is you're born with like superman or wonder woman some it's acquired and then some it's destiny that you develop it like buffy for instance i consider her a superhero buffy the vampire slayer that's how I categorize it. Okay. But all su all superheroes go through an arc that I think we humans go through, which is what are my gifts and talents? Um, let me explore them. So like, when is it too much of a good thing or it's just the right amount? And how can I focus it to use it in the way that I want to use it. And so I think that's, you know, part, what part of us do is what am, what are my talents? What, in what contexts should I use those talents? Okay. So there's, so interestingly, 
there's some literature that people who have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder tend to really be good and are gravitating, have gravitated towards being journalists mm. or what they used to call stockbrokers, very quick financial transactions. That So the idea is whoever we are, there are environments that really fit our skills and talents for our goals. And there are environments that aren't a great fit. Got it. Got it. So part of it is figuring out what's a good fit. And so in a workplace, right, this is the same thing, which is where do my talents, where are they allowed to flourish? Where can I really contribute and make a difference? And where am I stymied? Where are people sort of open and inclusive to what I have to give versus put obstacles in my way? So if I were Cyclops, I would cover my my eye so people wouldn't get burnt. <laughs> but I can, but that I knew how to use it and when to use it and what its effects were. Like I, I could, to the extent, he, he, this character can't control it, but he can control like for how long the glasses are on up and down. And so part of his journey is to explore what happens if it's for a second. What happens if it's for five seconds? What happens if it's for 10 seconds so that I can harness my power? And I think that's true for all of us. What's like knowing your audience, how much explaining do I need to do? Can I read their faces to say, to know when I'm done or I'm at too high a level or too low a level, right? These are all skills that help us when we learn them. If we take an example of a software engineer, um, a typical software engineer whose superpower might be coding, uh, right. but they might be the stereotypical engineer without soft skills. Mm -hmm. Now, the superpower is so developed, they're so good at what they do. Yep. How do you, I guess, augment certain pieces that are required in the workplace? Who's, who is the onus on that individual or on their manager? How do you work with somebody that's got a highly developed superpower, but deficient in something else? So I would say it's both people. Mm -hmm. So that's a great example where if you don't give the person feedback mm -hmm. about what their challenges are, they, they have no hope of growing, right? There's no hope of getting better at it. It's a blind spot. We all have blind spots. So if no one points out to you what your blind spot is, you can't ever try and look in that direction and counteract. Mm -hmm. So it is to the extent that it interferes, not necessarily with the coding, but the harmony of the group mm -hmm. or creates tension with coworkers uh, or one particular coworker. Again, it's how do we fix this problem? Notice I said we, right? <laughs> Managers spend an average of seven and a half weeks per year dealing with conflict management of people on their team. That's a lot of time. <laughs> now, if you're the coder, who, the super coder, and you now know about an area for development, then it's on you. So now, and you may ask for help. Maybe you ask for a coach or some other whatever the mechanism is at the company where they can be helpful to you. But then it's on you to do that work. 
And now that, now that you've received the feedback, it's on you. Right. Exactly. Now that it's on you, that's not to say that you can't ask for help. That's not to say it's really possible for you to say, hey, my name is Robin. I, you're new on the team. Let me tell you, I'm really good at coding. If you have any, if you need help, feel free to come to me. I'm not so good at reading facial cues. So I may miss that you're bored or that you're angry at me or impatient. So you feel free to tell me in words because it's actually easier for me if you tell me in words. I'm really, it's much more work. It's much harder for me and I'm likely to figure it out incorrectly. So I'm giving you permission to just tell me. Mm -hmm. right? And that's a way of handling it. Yeah, no, I think that's really good uh, feedback. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good way to tie in superpowers and feedback, absolutely. So I guess in closing, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the future of work and specifically how we should, um, what we should expect and what we should be doing more of, what we should be doing less of in a post-COVID world, or at least in a world that is a little different from what we knew two years ago. The first thing I would say is try to connect with people on your team or working group or a cross-functional set of people that you don't interact with. Let me rephrase that. You have enough of a relationship where you interact a decent amount, but you don't have much personal relationship. Yeah, I would say try to make a little bit of time to deepen that a tiny bit, to develop some trust. I would say my rule of thumb is if you don't give people feedback, they don't assume that they know. People can't read your mind as much as it would be lovely if they could. And it's hard. It's a burden to have to give feedback. You can ask a friend, allyship, to, to give the feedback if you can and, and they're willing. But um, people can't know if you don't tell them. And it's much harder remotely. Uh, they, they have far fewer cues to read and it's a risk to make an appointment with you to check it out, to see if you're okay. In an office, I can walk by your desk and we can smile at each other. And now I know things are good, right? Between us, but I don't have that opportunity. With If one of us is remote, I don't have that opportunity. So I would just say, really try to take the time to, to forge deeper relationships with people and just ask. If you think you might've misstepped and said something that landed poorly, ask. Hey, I, I said this the other day and I realized I never, how was that for you? I wanna learn. Yeah, there you go. Or, hey, was I, I really tried not to interrupt this meeting. How'd I, how'd I do? Perfect. I, I think uh, we can all live and uh, learn more. It's been absolutely fascinating. Where can people find you and how can they get in touch with you? I'll put it all in the show notes, of course, Robin. Great, 
great question. So they can reach me via LinkedIn. I'm the only Robin Rosenberg who's a psychologist. There are other ones. Our website is liveintheirworld.com. And we have also a LinkedIn page. We're on Twitter at liveN, the letter N, their world, liveN, their world. And on our website, if people want, we have a free download of a white paper of best practices in giving and receiving feedback. Just go to liveintheirworld.com backslash publications. And it's right there. Well, perfect. Um, it was such a pleasure having you on my show. And thank you for joining me from New York. It was really a pleasure. Great, great questions. A lot of fun. And you take care. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Change Alchemist. If you enjoyed the show, listen on iTunes or any platform of your choice. Follow me on Twitter at Shobhanavi. That's S-H-O-B-H-A-N-A-V. And see you all next week.